Welcome back to another episode of the Real Bars Read podcast. We have another very special guest with us today. We have Dr. Shauna L. Rabman, who is a professor of English and comparative literature and at the Center for the Study of Ethnicity and Race at Columbia University. She is a native of Racine, Wisconsin, and the daughter of working class parents whose experiences of service work and incarceration profoundly impacted her political and racial identity. She is a writer and interdisciplinary scholar of race, culture, and power, and the author of Anthem, Social Movements, and the Sound of Solidarity in the African Diaspora, which came out in 2014, and Everything Man, the Form and Function of Paul Robeson, which received a 2021 American Book Award from the Before Columbus Foundation with the special citation of the Walter and Lillian Lowenfels Award for Welcome to the to the show, Dr. Hemming. We're so excited uh, to have you the show. And we just wanted to ask what the book was that, that you chose for us to talk about and when was the first time that you read it? Thank you. Thank you for having me. I'm really thrilled to be here. Um, the book that I selected for discussion today is A Little Devil in America, Notes in Praise of Black Performance by Hanif Abdurraqib. And um, I first read this book I guess last fall, not too long after it came out. So the fall of 2021, I taught it in my graduate seminar at Columbia, which was called The Blues Epistemology. Mm. And um, the book was brand new and I've been following Hanif's career um, for a few years now, a couple of years now, um, starting with his first book of essays, They Can't Kill You Until They Kill You. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was just really curious about what he was putting back into the world. He's a poet, he's a music critic. Um, he's someone who's very much attuned to the here and now. And so I wanted to see his take on kind of small scale experiences of black music and performance. But of course, knowing that all of those very small scale experiences mean everything for how we understand the rest of the world. And so his ability to actually work through very personal, intimate kinds of relationships to black music and black musicians has been really inspiring to me to think about and also to think about in these longer traditions. So as I said, I taught it in my grad course which was interested in taking up this theorization by a cultural geographer named Clyde Woods, who was a colleague of mine, um, who wrote a book called Development Arrested. And in it, he theorizes this idea of the blues epistemology, which is an effort by Black working class and working poor peoples in the Delta to respond to systems of dispossession and violence, which he calls the plantation block, and thinking about how Black musics over the long 20th century have revealed the ways in Black, the ways in which Black people think about their relationship to power, their relationship to culture, their relationship to one another, to the land. And so taking that as kind of an umbrella framework of thinking about the blues as more than just sad songs, right? I think that's the the kind of common sense that we've inherited is that the blues are just about pain and sorrow and suffering. 
when in fact so many essayists, poets, playwrights, musicians have described that it is far more than that. It's about that and all of the joy and uh, desire and um, capacities yeah. of Black thought and culture. And so we were looking over the semester at various efforts by Black writers to respond to the tradition of the blues, um, but also to rethink it, redevelop it in different kinds of ways. So we looked at Baldwin, we looked at August Wilson, we looked at um, Angela Davis, we looked at all these people, mm -hmm. um, but we also looked at Hanif's book in part because I really just wanted to read it and it was new, but also because of kind of the breadth of, of musicians and performance artists mm -hmm. that he was looking at in the book and trying to see whether or not it fit within this long blues genealogy that we were tracking throughout the century. And I think it does, right? He's touching on people who were at least peripherally involved in some way with the blues tradition like Josephine Baker Mm -hmm. And also thinking about its resonances, um, you know, Mary Clayton and singing with the Rolling Stones, you know, that rock and roll is directly derivative of the blues, right? Mm -hmm. And so not just thinking about genre matching, but also thinking about the kinds of broader stories that he's telling about life and death in Black communities, that he's telling about Black spectacularity in in the 20th century, um, all of the ways that he's drawing into conflict and tension, the ways in which Black people have been caricatured and positioned from Blackface minstrelsy into the magical Negro trope in contemporary film. So it was just a really um, dense opportunity to think about the blues capaciously, but just in general to think about Black thought and performance in ways that I don't think many of my graduate students had considered yet, and certainly in ways that I'm um, more and more committed to revealing. Because the one thing that I think I really like about his writing style, one of the things that I really like about his writing style is what I was mentioning earlier about scale, right? That he can take a moment of him at a club in the basement of a bar after Michael Jackson has died. Right. And that story of one night in Ohio will tell us a ton about how we understand living as Black people in the world. Um, and so I love that ability to take the, the kind of granular moment and make it cosmic. Mm -hmm. And I think he has that capacity and it's really thrilling to read. Mm. That's that's the best first answer possible. So yeah, much definitely clear. is. My my first my first reflection on the capaciousness of like the uh, blues. I guess I would want to ask you why you feel the the tragic element ends up overshadowing the rest of it, because even in Hanif's book, right, like he does encompass so many emotions, but it feels like. You know, there were the times in the essays where, right, it started talking about death or when when the artist or whoever he was writing about just, right, had that tragic twist fade. And he would, and he, and he does it so well, but like, because that feeling, he kept coming back to it. It felt like over time, right, that was the element that even was over overshadowing my own reading of it, that tra tragic element. And right, I, I, I always hate 
when black life, black culture is so tied to, to death, right? I don't want to say it's inevitable, but I, I guess, you know, as a scholar over the amount of years that you've been studying music and black culture, like, why do you think it's frequently is? Yeah, I mean, it's a good question. It's a big question. I think mm -hmm. there are a lot of answers to that. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think, you know, what I'm working on right now is really centrally invested in working through scenes of spectacular death, you know, and mm -hmm. I think part of the reason that I continue to be, and, you know, the Robeson book is also in some respects a response to death, right? Because mm -hmm. I'm interested in his afterlife. I'm interested mm -hmm. in the ways he returns to us. Mm -hmm. So I think part of the answer to your question is the fact that death is always a tether for blackness, right? Because of our experiences of colonialism, because of our experiences of occupation because of our experiences of dispossession it's never far from how we are understood externally right and is really in combat with how other people see and represent us right and this is part of what hanif is getting at in this book right again with the trope of the magical negro like he's saying i just want a story where don shirley is taking a nap like, why does he always have to be the, like, um, second fiddle or, you know, kind of wingman of a white guy? You know, like, why does this have to be this only stories that we're being told about Blackness or about this Black person in particular? Mm -hmm. Because the kinds of stories that we've been taught to consume about Blackness have to be either spectacularly heroic or spectacularly tragic. We can't just be normal. We can't be average. We have to be somehow spectacular. And I think, you know, part of what he does in telling these smaller scale stories is to displace that spectacularity. And so I want to do similarly in the work that I'm doing. But again, they are tethered to death, right? That there are all of these ways in which the author of Black life, the representations of Black life, the artists of Black life have to contend with this ever looming specter of our own demise, you yeah. know, because we're vulnerable all the time, everywhere, right? Mm -hmm. And it's not to say that that has to be over-determining in how we live our lives. It doesn't have to be over-determining in how we represent ourselves or our lives, but it is to say that to forget that element may be dangerous. It may be liberatory, but it also may be dangerous. And so I think there's some difficulty that we have in stepping away from that, but also the fact that in studying it, what we're hoping for ultimately is not reiterating it, but overcoming it. And I don't mean overcome in like, you know, a 1964 kind of we shall overcome way. I mean like abolishing it, right? Like stomping all over it, like refusing it, you know? Mm. Um, so in studying it, we can see all of the mechanisms that might undo it, right? So that's part of my investment in thinking through it, but also recognizing all of the ways that we evade it, that we evade capture, that we evade death, that we simply refuse to be, to be captured. Um, and I think that's part of 
you know, he uses the word magic in this book and that, you know, that's a word that's been more and more mm -hmm. important to me in thinking about blackness. So even as death is, is this tether, I think part of the effort is to actually announce it's a tether, but it's not an anchor. It doesn't mean we stay there. It doesn't mean we only exist there. It means that look at all of these other things that we are and are becoming and have done and will do that actually more and more displace or trouble or refuse the kinds of death-making machines and languages that have been used against us. But I, I don't think it's going anywhere, right? Because people still need to work through mm -hmm. who they are in the world and how other people are viewing them, right? And because it's dialogic in that way, because it's a dialogue between how we're represented and who we truly are, that means that that death spectacle is always going to be somewhere in the mix, even if it's not at the center. Yeah, and, and actually on the spectacularity of death, I mean, I think Hanif did something very interesting with his essay um, on uh, Whitney Houston and his reflections on her life, um, because he really did exercise refusal there at the end, right? You know, he tells he tells the story of just, you know, her... Mm -hmm. uh situation being you know kind of like put up as a pop star for the white masses and then having to kind of slowly build her relationship uh and comfort just with black audiences but then there at the end he says you know i'm done talking about you know her death the the drugs the the bathroom picture mm -hmm. right and um i think you know i, I had never really thought about those final paragraphs of that essay until you just brought up just how you can decenter the spectacularity of it while still include it um, is a very particular uh, example of just kind of what you're talking about. I think it's really great. And so, I mean, in your own work um, and in your interest, especially as you mentioned, um, wanting to get more into the form of writing essays, uh, what what are you refusing, right? Like, what are you exercising your your own power to refuse? Um, or to decenter in a particular way, given your values and beliefs. Yeah, I think it's really important to actually decenter the ways in which Black folks are always um, refusing, or, or not refusing, because I quite like that word, but I think the ways in which Black music in particular, but mm. Black culture writ large, is always a response to something rather than just being proactive in its own kinds of visions. You know, it is not always the case that a song or a ballet or whatever is being created is in response to something that has happened immediately in the world, right? We carry all of those experiences with us and they will seep out into our writing or composition or whatever else in ways that we may not ever really understand. But I'm not interested, I've never been interested in my work in intent on the part of the musicians. It's not inconsequential, it's not unimportant, but it's not where my interests lie. I've mostly been interested in how people use the music that they hear, right? How it gets taken up in communities of thought and action and how it advances black people's capacity to live. That's ultimately what I'm interested in. So, I'm interested then in Hanif's form, the form in which he writes, as you mentioned, the essay form as an opportunity for kind of quick thought pieces, 
right? That we can take a single song or we can take even a day out of the life of Whitney Houston, right? When he focuses so much on her Grammy performance in that moment, right? We can take that singular moment and make it something else. To read it differently so that we understand that event in a different kind of way, but also that it begins to fundamentally shift how Whitney has been placed in popular culture because she has been, she has suffered a grand disservice in the long stories of her career, right? And her relationship to popular culture. So I think just by rereading that Grammy moment differently, he has already done some significant work towards adjusting that history and representation. And I think for me, Part of what the essay form delivers is the opportunity to drop some deep provocations on people and just walk away. And this is in part, again, where our conversation about curiosity comes in, you know, that I can make a really explosive statement and just put a period on it and then move on to the next chapter, right? What does that leave the reader with? That forces them to have to pursue something else or work through whatever feelings they have or to go listen to something else, right? Or to write a response or whatever the issue may be. And I think that he has inched closer to that in this book. So his first book of essays is is interested in, in doing a little bit more of music criticism, having gone to concerts and have written for, you know, music trade publications. In this project, I think he's done more work to actually just drop some, some moments of devastation on the reader and move on. You know, mm -hmm. it's less about close reading the performance uh, in the way that he did in his first book or situate that performance within a broader kind of music criticism literature than it is about really tackling people's relationships to power and how they understand themselves in relationship to black musicians. He knows by this point of this book that white folks are reading him. Like he knows that well, right? Yeah. And so he's, he's speaking differently. His tone is different in this book of essays mm -hmm. than it was in his first. Um, if he didn't already know white folks were reading him, he knows by now. So I think, you know, that that kind of format, I'm, I'm really interested in the short, pithy, like, I'm just going to devastate you right now moment. And then I walk away, you know, mic drop on the page, you know, because that then compels something, even if you hate me at the end of it, I'm cool with that. I just want, I want a strong reaction because I feel strongly about what I'm writing, you know? And I think the ways in which we kind of put ourselves on the page matters because we're doing all of this work to shift representation, because we're doing all of this work to speak to power, we have to actually be comfortable with and competent in making some big, big claims and knowing the stakes of what it is we produce. And so I'm more and more committed to just, uh, you know, talking shit and walking away. Yeah, Sam, <laughs> fuck it. Just, <laughs> there you go. <laughs> wow. What, Take it. Mike, do you think that that style is really possible though in like an academic setting it seems like academic writing you know puts the burden of proof 
on people you can't really do mic drops because they're like oh no 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 where you're like you know <laughs> supporting evidence like, <laughs> argument so like i i guess i would want to ask what do you think academic writing uh occludes and what and what does it highlight more than you know more casual general nonfiction? yeah that's a great question um you know i think in general that academic writing is really self-important right like we think very highly of ourselves mm. <laughs> in the kinds of work that we do i think first we need to think less highly of ourselves um, because there are smart people everywhere without PhDs, without BAs, right? My father is one of the smartest people I know, and he got through high school and that was it, you know? Um, and his parents could barely read. So I, I think we think too highly of ourselves, which manifests on the page, meaning that, that the kinds of statements and declarations we're making first of all, can sometimes be too narrow, right? That people are so focused on a single author or focused on um, a single public, you know, intellectual or public historical figure, right? That the kinds of work people do, what is often kind of beat into academics is to specialize 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 which means we get narrower and narrower and narrower in our fields of knowledge in order to seek something that the academy has told us is called expertise right so we have to study one thing and do it very very well do it to death in fact in order to get our bona fides in the field I've never believed that. Again, I was trained as an interdisciplinary scholar. So while some people kind of pejoratively refer to interdisciplinarity as, you know, jack of all trades, master of none, I always felt like because my guiding principle was curiosity, that I was going to be able to jump around and based on wherever my interests lie or wherever the document or the person or the song was next taking me which meant that for the Robeson book, I had to go read in physics and mechanical engineering because he was forcing me to go look over there in ways that were I writing a biography or were I you know, doing something that was only archively based, the history profession would have refused that effort, right? That wouldn't have even crossed the mind of a typically trained historian to consider those literatures. Why would you be interested in holograms to write this story about Paul Robeson? Mm -hmm. So I think you know, there's a way in which the field, the profession is very disciplining, literally. And I hate it. I hate it. That's not, that's not what learning is for me. It's not meant to discipline. It's meant to expand. It's meant to liberate. So I'm always rebelling against that. But I do think too, because of that, that there's the narrowing, but then there's also the language, right? That they call jargon, right? We're using certain concepts that will only be familiar to a very small number of people in our fields. And I refuse that also. It just doesn't make sense for me to write books that my parents, my communities don't have any interest in. It's not that people can't understand them. It's that in flipping through them, it doesn't resonate. Like there's no pull, there's no hook for them. And I understand it because there's not always a hook for me and I'm supposed to read this shit, right? So I think that, you know, people have to be able to write in a way 
that is more reflective of the communities of whom they write, right? If you're writing about communities of color, you should want those people to read your shit. And if they don't, then there's a problem there. But also that the work that I put out be reflective of who I really am and where I am in that stage of my life, what I'm curious about in that moment, the kinds of languages that are hitting me at that moment, the kinds of ways in which I need to stretch and extend myself in new ways. And it, it should feel like a challenge. I feel like I should be challenged to write whatever it is that I'm doing. Too often I have colleagues who write in the same narrow space because it's comfortable, not because it's challenging, but because it's comfortable. And that's not the kind of career I want. That's not the kind of mind that I want. I want a mind always open to and, and desirous of challenge. So that means I have to move out of my comfort zone and do hard things. Um, but, you know, it's relatively easy for me to say these things. I, it's not any less true that I believe them, but it's also relatively easy because I have job security, right? And that's no small thing. I have tenure. I'm a full professor. I can write a book that the academy shits on and still move forward in my career, right? Academics are less and less my audience. So that's liberating to me. Like that is possibility for me to know that I'm not worried about what my colleagues think. If they like it, I love it. That's enjoyable. But if they don't, I'm cool. Yeah. Wait. So wow. I mean, you're you're dropping a lot of hot fire right now, <laughs> but I think what I really what I would really love is could you take us back to uh to Shauna Redmond before before the PhD as a child like where where did the curiosity come from right like what what was your story growing up uh you know the people around you the, some experiences that you had that really just you know brought you to who you are today as someone who is just so like like incredibly strong in your stance on the importance of curiosity and following your interests into disciplinarity everything um yeah, I mean, I grew up, um, I grew up working class in the Midwest, you know, where everything was, was kind of a struggle. It was a struggle to be black. It was a struggle to, um, you know, maintain resources in our home. Um, my father was incarcerated for about a decade. Um, he was locked up when I was 12. So there was a lot that I kind of took upon myself as the oldest, but also as someone, I think just, you know, kind of natural to my character who was interested in, in leading and caring for other people and, and protecting people. Um, and so there were things that I had to figure out how to do as a 12 and 13 year old that other 12 and 13 year olds didn't have to figure out how to do. And part of that was also figuring out a way of making that system of accountability and leadership sustainable. So deciding very, very early and just knowing without a doubt that I was going to college, right? Neither of my parents went to college. Um, you know, just being very, very steadfast and clear. That was something that I learned very, very young, right? Is that I was going, if I announced something, you know, it's word is bond. If I said I was going to do something, I do it. And I'm very clear about what needs to be done in order to put certain kinds of things in place. So always thinking forward. So there was that ethic 
um, of, you know, just incredible discipline um, that started pretty early. But then in college, um, I went to a liberal arts college, which I think made a difference, right? Rather than a big R1 where I could have kind of gotten swallowed up by the size of the campus and things like that, I went to a very small school in the Twin Cities. And I had a lot of close mentorship. There were faculty who early on believed in me and that made a difference, you know, for me being able to see that the process of thought was really important to me, but also that by extension, there was a career for me in it, right? And so being able to have mentors who saw something in me that they could build upon and spark and encourage made a huge, huge difference for me. Um, and so at that point, you know, I didn't know that people could choose to be college professors. I didn't know, you know, I had no idea of how my professors got to be where they were, right? I don't know if I thought, you know, people just were dropped into colleges or, or what I believed happened. But as far as knowing, oh, you go to school for six or eight or 10 years, and then you hopefully get a job, blah, blah, blah. I didn't know any of that stepping on campus. You know, I was like, I'm here for four years. I'll get a decent job on the other side. I'll be able to help my family. And that's what matters. And then my sophomore year, I got a fellowship called the Mellon Mays um, Fellowship, which is invested in in the pipeline of underrepresented scholars in the academy, right? So if you enter, if you are accepted into this program, they help you figure out graduate school and pay off some of your student loans. And with the whole point being to change what the professoriate looks like to get more underrepresented scholars into the professoriate. And so once I was accepted into that program, I was like, oh snap, like I guess I could be a professor and this could actually be it. Um, but it was really because I was interested in so many things as a college student that I ended up pursuing graduate study in interdisciplinary fields. So I have a combined PhD in African American Studies and American Studies, um, which are two interdisciplinary fields. And I, I wanted to believe that everything was mine. Everything was accessible to me. Nothing was off limits. And that was the kind of training I wanted. And it worked out. Um, but I did know relatively early on that music was going to be at the center of whatever it was that I studied. I didn't know at the time how differently I was studying music compared to what the academy understands as musicology or ethnomusicology. Um, that is very clear to me now how differently I do the work, but um, that kind of training, that kind of was just, my mentors were just like, go, go do it, go figure it out, you know? And there wasn't a lot of handholding for me in graduate school. So they were kind of just like, go figure it out and I'll let you know if it's good enough. And it worked because I had that discipline as a young person um, and because, I wanted to make big kinds of claims. I went and did the work because I respect the people that I write about, because I care about the stories that we tell about black folks. All of that compelled me to, to work harder and do better and to do differently, 
right? Like not just to mirror or mimic what I saw already in the books that I was reading, but to do something different, tell different kinds of stories in order that the people who read my book can now go tell even more different kinds of stories. So that's something I think about too, is am I making space for other people to take even bigger leaps and to be even more capacious in their thinking? We're, we're in awe, we're in awe. Um, I immediately thought of a story that I heard from Doc, Dr. Scott Brown. Um, and he, right, is doing a book on the Dayton uh, funk, funk scene. We, we are both from Dayton. And he was trying to get an interview uh, with Sugarfoot from the Ohio Players for like a while. And finally gets the interview and like the first thing that Sugar asked him is like, can he play? Like, I, I don't care what you want to write about this, 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 this music. Like, do you know how to play? And, you know, Dr. Brown pulls out his, his, his bass and they just start jamming and right, the interview flows <laughs> from that jam. But that's all to say, like, I feel like folks who play music and know music come at music writing at a, at a different capacity. And so as a trained vocalist, like, what, what do you think from that training, from knowing how to sing informs, how, do, how does that inform your writing? Do you see any difference between singing and writing, if any? Yeah. Yeah, thank you for that question. I didn't, I didn't think about my vocal training as so influential in my work until I wrote the Robeson book. The first book on anthems, it was helpful to the extent that I had already been part of the practice of singing with other people for a long time, having been part of choirs and things like that. So that element just was kind of in the background of writing that project. But in writing the ropes in project, you know, if my argument is that he vibrated over his entire lifetime, then I had to have some intimate kind of bodily knowledge of what that vibration actually felt like, but also what it produced for other people. So having been a vocalist was hugely significant for me in being able to talk about what is vibration? What does it take to actually develop it in the body? What does it feel like to vibrate in that way? And what, what capacities does it take? It takes knowing your organs differently, right? Kind of utilizing them differently. Um, and so it made a huge difference for me to have that knowledge already because you can't read about that in the way that will make most sense for its application you know like you can read about singers you can even read about technique but short of kind of having that experience right it's really hard to actually translate it for people and this is in part too why i think being a fan of the music that i write about makes a difference right that if you, if you don't love it, you can tell reading about it on the page. If the author doesn't love it, you can tell, right? And it doesn't have to be a piece of criticism in the times, like a review for you to know they don't love it. Similarly, you know if people don't love black people, but they're writing about black people. You know, like you can tell in the tone, the word choice, all of those things. So I think the, the effort for me was really in try, trying to understand in whatever way I could his body through my own 
and having been a vocalist made a huge, huge difference in that. It also made a difference for me to try other instruments that I knew he had encountered or worked in concert with. So for example, this right here is my theremin, which I talk about at the mm -hmm. end of the book. Um, I'm pointing for the podcast listeners to a, <laughs> uh, an antenna sitting next to me during this conversation. And this is the antenna for my theremin, which I purchased in order to write about Paul Robeson. I took lessons on this instrument in order to write about Paul Robeson, not because he was a thereminist, but because he toured with the thereminist in the 1940s. And I wanted to know how he understood his voice alongside this instrument that still to this day, people think is very, very strange, right? Hmm. Um, so, you know, he forced me to do things that I could not have anticipated. And this is again, the interdisciplinarity, the curiosity, you know, all of these things, like, there was no reason were I writing a straightforward biography for me to take theremin lessons in telling that story, but because I was interested in different kinds of vibrations and frequency and all of these other things that kept him in circulation, it meant I had to do things that other people would not do. And so for that reason, I think in some respects, the writing might be more difficult than the singing, um, in part because I think in both ways, the vocalist and the writer are trying to translate something for the audience, right? We're trying to translate either notes on the page mm -hmm. for a listening audience as a musician, as a vocalist, or we're trying to use the written page to translate in the opposite direction, right? I, as a writer, am trying to translate for listeners what I'm hearing, but onto the page, which is harder, I think, than trying to translate the composition to a listening audience. Mm -hmm. So I, I'm more comfortable writing now than I am singing, honestly, because I'm out of practice. Um, we can go do karaoke sometime if you want to. But other than that, <laughs> my singing is not where it used oh. to be. Um, <laughs> But the, the writing is more difficult in part because there's so much I'm trying to say. I'm trying to make so much available to the reader that, you know, you, I have to labor over every single line that I'm delivering. So they're, they're mutually constitutive for me, like they rely on each other, um, but the writing has been more developed of recent and so is therefore a little bit harder for me than this than the singing real quick we're lit at a karaoke bar and it's your <laughs> turn it's your turn to choose a song and I'm, absolutely I'm kill it who who what are you picking what song what artist man that's really really hard you know you my, do a few, the one I like to, to the table if you want it doesn't have to be just one well, the one i like to pull out just to kind of stun everybody like yo that black girl is singing this is barbara streisand's evergreen from, oh um, a star <laughs> um damn because people don't expect that from me um but you know the one that i'm still trying to get all of my highs together over but just slays is to me as a stranger in my house wow we're just playing it, some... it, it, yeah i know we we're just listening to me. <laughs> yeah, wow she's so good she's so underrated she is yeah true. Yeah, i saw her live at the Cincinnati music festival a couple of years ago um 
Very, very good. Very good. Yeah. Um, so, so. And oh. then almost any Stevie Wonder. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, yeah. yeah. You no. Know, I would um, probably go up and, you know, slay Old Man Rever. You know what I'm saying? The real <laughs> karaoke vibes, you know? We shall. Really? No, no, I'm joking. I have no doubt. <laughs> I mean, you can't, you can't, you can't really sing Paul Robinson songs like, you know that that voice is, is pretty. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> right. No. Yeah. No. Because we we were we were joking around beforehand too. Like, oh, uh, we got to ask her what does it take to get that Paul Robeson voice? You know? <laughs> like, what? <laughs> we're just like, nah. Just yeah, yeah. Exactly. I mean, no, Paul Robeson though also said that his father had like an even better voice. He said that his father had like the richest, most sonorous like baritone he's heard in his life. And that's where I'm just like, it's straight up genes. Cause if he's saying that his dad has like twice as good of a voice as he did, like he was like, and I think he was a pastor, like 10 right? Times better voice than everyone. He was a pastor. Yeah. yeah right, Princeton right. for a long, long time. The most beautiful voice he ever heard, right? Was his father's. Yeah. Right. Man, it's so much. But um, how does it feel to be in, in Harlem? I mean, you know, I wish I were in it more. You know, right. the COVID circumstance right. has me, you know, pretty much sheltered. I have an unvaccinated babe. So, mm. um, you know, it's hard to be here and not really be here, you know, yeah. be in it, but not of it. That's yeah. what I choose for my work life. Like I'm in it, but not of it. But Harlem, I want to be in it and of it. I want to experience all of these things. So mm. it's been hard in that respect to kind of be here and and not yet have the opportunity because I'm brand new to kind of be out in the streets and acting mm -hmm. up and doing right. what I want to do. Right. Um, but, you know, the vibe is beautiful. The vibe is beautiful. And I really look forward to what it'll become because of course, you know, we talk a lot about all of the history that's here and that's all well and good and, and lush and powerful, but I think we really need to take stock too of the communities who are still here and are living right now today, right? There's a lot of genius already in these streets. So I want to be out and listening to people and building relationships as soon as mm -hmm. possible. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because even starting to work in Harlem in the last couple of months, you know, I, I step off the train and I think, right, too often it feels like um i'm thinking too much about history um and the past and right just as as you're saying like folks are still here they're still alive like the history is beautiful you know the music the um move movements everything but like right those those are still going on and yeah and i try to be mindful of those right. things in part because i work at an institution that takes advantage of the past tense Mm -hmm. in order to evade, um, you know, responsibility for the present tense, right? If they can only tell a story about Harlem that exists in the past, that means they can continue to encroach upon Harlem as it currently exists to build up real estate and all kinds of infrastructure that doesn't benefit that community. So I want to refuse the past tense Harlem narrative for that reason. It's not to dismiss it because it's urgent. It's so much a part of how I formed as an intellectual was knowing that history. But to refuse it now is actually an act of, of defense for that community. You know, like, no, these people are still here and living and working and thriving in spite of all of these 
these violences that continue to be enacted against them. So I, I'm just mindful of that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and the continuation of uh, the question though, like as a labor activist, I'm really curious too, like what you have found of that in this city, uh, you know, just right in my couple months here, it's felt like a very, you know, capitalist, fast paced place where like organizing seems almost like luxury just in terms of, of time, given the, the fact that folks have to make a crazy rent every single month. So what, what do you think of the state of that here? Um, now, is it, is it going well? Is it not? Yeah, I don't know that I have the greatest sense just on scale right now of, of what's happening in New York. I mean, I spent almost 15 years in L.A. where I think the the artifice factor is a little bit higher because of Hollywood and everything. Right. Yeah. So you just think everything is plush. You know, everybody has their benzo and they're doing whatever they need to do. Everyone's on the grind hustling. And some of that is true, like there is a vibe of the grind in Los Angeles that I found really, really motivating. It's not to say that everybody's grind is directed in the right place, right? Like I think some people are really on some, some foolishness, but there's also, you know, people who are, are modeling how to chase their dreams in responsible ways. And that's really beautiful and inspiring. So I found a lot of that energy really exciting and I think it'll be a similar thing here. But I also knew living in Los Angeles that everything was not as it seems, that where there are rich people, there are poor people and those poor people are struggling and they're fighting and they're winning, right? And I think that there are, are um, you know significant evidences of that you know the unions having gotten community benefits agreements with the staples center right uh, in los angeles and other evidences of unions having done the work of being real formative presences in their communities and assisting the workers not only with their contracts but of also having built community centers and other kinds of incentives such that their children might be in a position to get a good union job, right? That there's some sustainability to the models of organizing that some of the unions are doing right now. So I was a member and organizer of Unite Here when I was a graduate student and worked a little bit with the local in Los Angeles. And that is a union that is thinking in a, at a larger scale about what the impact of the union and their workers is going to be because the numbers of unionized workers are dwindling rapidly, right? I think on the national level, it's really only about 10% of workers are unionized in this country, which is devastating, right? Because so much of the economy has moved to the service model that's where we now need to be organizing. So hotel workers, fast food workers, you know, retail workers, those are the people who need to be organized right now. And Unite Here has taken up that mantle in some significant degree and also insisted upon not only local grassroots leadership, but leadership from local workers of color, right? That they're promoting black women to top leadership positions and things such as that. So I think that there's that model that already exists. That union has a presence in Los Angeles. I know they have some presence here in the Northeast. Um, so I do have hope, 
you know? And this is, I think this returns to this question about death. Like, I can't be hopeful if I'm always dragging death at my heel. You know, like there's, I think we have a lot more future sightedness in us than we do past sightedness in us. I think we're always moving towards something else that is aware of kind of the looming possibilities of precarity and vulnerability, but we're moving towards new horizons of justice with abolition, of, of you know, education with demands for free secondary education, all of those things. And I think you know, education in New York City, of course, is a huge battle. And one of those kind of forefronts where I think the labor movement needs to step in and will continue to step in. Um, but where we can see some real evidence of people having organized and, and collectivized together towards something different. So I have a lot of hope for what could happen. The evidence of, of where it might be going, I'm, I have yet to kind of figure out. I've been here six months, so I'm still, you know, trying to understand the lay of the land. Yeah, so is, so is Miles, you know, <laughs> fresh out, fresh out the, out the Midwest over here in New York, like, oh, hello, how are you? <laughs> you know. Are you still in the Midwest? No, yeah, so I, um, I'm in Germany, actually, and then my job, because I work at Georgetown University in DC, so I'm based there, um, okay. but I live in Germany most of the time. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Oh, wow. And that was also a recent move. We we've been kind of like all over the place. I mean, generally, but yeah. especially in the last year. Um, so yeah, just, just a interesting time of transition for sure. But mm -hmm. yeah. Mm -hmm. I want to pull up real quick, some really good writing that I was reading earlier. And it says that through anthems, the delineation between art and politics, as well as listener and actor is, is blurred. Anthems demand some, something of their listeners. In performance, they often occasions hands placed over hearts or standing at attention. Yet more than a physical gesture, anthems require subscri subscription to a system of beliefs that stir and organize the, the receivers of the music. So with that being said, uh, that's from your intro of Anthem. Uh, <laughs> what do you think are some anthems of the 21st century? And how how do you situate them with, you know, anthems of the 20th since you studied them in this book? Yeah, that's a, that's a good question. I mean, you know, again, my investment is how these songs are used. So I have to rely on communities to tell me what the anthems are. Mm. Um, you know, I end the book thinking about Dead Prez's hip hop as kind of the first anthem of the 21st century and certainly was talking to the press and speaking with students and community organizations in the early stages of um, the movement for Black Lives around Kendrick's All Right as an anthem um, of the 21st century. So what is coming out in the contemporary moment. I think we have a lot of, 
of pieces that are directly responsive, right? So I mentioned earlier that not all Black artistic production is just a response, right? That there are other kinds of proactive evidences of Black political work in the arts world that is really important to pay attention to. So we still have that happening, right? J. Cole writing in response to Ferguson and all of these things that are happening. And it's not to say that those pieces then are not capable of doing like heavy political lifting. They are even as a response. But I think some of the songs that became anthems are songs that were never intended to be that, right? Like they were written in a moment of deep contemplation or, you know, intensely local antagonism and struggle, right? So we shall overcome it grew on the picket lines of a strike in Charleston, right? We don't know that story. So I think for me to know what, what the current anthems are would mean that I would be listening very, very locally. Like I would be listening to specific events as they're happening on the ground because it takes a minute for songs most often to ascend to a national or international decibel so I don't know what the current anthem is right now because I think they're still being developed and they're being used right. in ways that will only be revealed with time. Mm -hmm. But that what I do know is that the impulse to create an anthem is always there and is not going anywhere. Black people will always have their own unique traditions of relationship to music making and an investment in it becoming political speech. Mm -hmm. So the types of challenges that are always being leveled to the Star Spangled Banner, for example, mm -hmm. that's not going anywhere. There's always going to be that antagonism between dispossessed communities, in particular Black communities, and the performance of the, of the national anthem. That's just not how we live our citizenship. So overall, not singularly because we're not a monolith, but overall, that's not how we perform. It's also not how we listen. So I think, you know, this question of, of a single national anthem versus multiple movement anthems versus national anthems, all of those kinds of debates and antagonisms will continue to proliferate because we continue to create and speak differently to power and to our, our citizenship in this country. Yeah. Uh well, my good. Well, I was just gonna uh, say my own personal hot take for a current anthem, uh, which you know Jen and I have debated about a bit, but is uh, "WAP" by uh, Cardi B and Meg and Meg the Stallion, because uh, our younger sister Vera uh, recently wrote an essay about how "WAP" was this anthem for like liberation of pleasure, and like she was even quoting uh, folks that had said that the song had like given them agency um, in that sense. But like, right, I, I think it, it kind of did blur this line of art and politics and that like everyone had an opinion on it. Like I, I, I'm i still in my mind, right, debating about like its responsiveness of its like imagery as like a video, but I, I don't I don't know if that's um, different than, than the song itself. Um, so. I think that's part of the complication in the current right. moment, right? Is that we don't just hear music, we watch it. Mm -hmm. So we have to attend to what the visuals are producing for mm -hmm. us as much as what the song itself is doing or saying. I'm sorry mm -hmm. to cut you off. 
Well, I was going to say too, that, um, the other intersection is just with industry. I mean, um, mm -hmm. we were reading a little bit about your, uh, your, uh, nascent opinions on, we are the world. Right. <laughs> and I think like part of, part of the, part of the issue for me with anthems is that, um, you know, they, they definitely, when they are proactive in that sense, like they can toe the line of being like corny. And I think the way that you just described it was so like nuanced and accurate in a way around recognizing that in order for it to like be uh, enlivening and a catalyst for a movement, like it's got to be organic, right? It's got to come from the ground up. It can't be something because like people suss that out immediately, you know, they, yeah. it just looks wrong. Right. Um, right. But but yeah, I think I, I think, the, you know, just bringing that in because you you had got me thinking about how, you know, even the idea of an anthem can be almost like co-opted um, uh, for the sake of, you know, sensationalism or just making money and everything like that. So it's not even just the arts and politics. It's like, you know, where's where's the money in this as well? Right. And this is why it was important for me to kind of think about this transition into hip hop through Dead Prez, who's always been critical of the industry, right? And their place within it, how MCs, producers are co-opted and used for services other than their own design. So I think, you know, that kind of critical anti-capital or critical industry stance is really, really significant from thinking about what do these anthems achieve? And it's not to say that all of them have to be perfectly politically coherent, right? There are gonna be contradictions, like WAP is certainly not anti-capitalist, right? So, you know, it's, it's an imperfect <laughs> song for those purposes, right? But for women who still feel as though they're only measured by the gaze of men, that they have to exist in a very narrow kind of framework under the auspices of heteropatriarchy yeah it's a banger right like it does something differently for how we might imagine ourselves in the world how we might utilize and live through our sexuality in ways that have have been significant in kind of recurrent waves and this is just the latest of them but something that i think is interesting about WAP as an anthem too is to think about its sample right, the house sample that is the foundation for that entire song and what the house scene, which is a black scene, which is a queer scene, actually does then for perhaps complicating their kind of narrative around the around women's role around sexuality, but also gives us an expansive sense of what that political public could actually look like. We take their lyricism, we take the original house track and we're like, oh, this is a black queer utopia, right? That still needs a capitalist reading, but it's <laughs> actually more inclusive than just the Cardi version right. might allow us to believe, right? You have to dig the samples, you have to actually be curious mm. and look up all of these things. So I think that element of it is, is provocative to say the least. Hmm. Uh, on the on the point of samples, do you have any favorite samples? Any like, uh, you know, just you you love the original song. Somebody takes it, does a great job with it as well. Uh, we talk about samples all the time. So, you know, just wanted to invite you in on this, like running running conversation around greatest samples of all time, like just favorite ones, the ones that hit really hard, everything. Yeah, well, one that I'm writing about, and I think, well, 
have been writing about in fits and spurts and that I love the original. I love every sample I've heard. Um, it, and since y'all are from Ohio is heat waves, a star of the story. Ooh, um, and this song was used by Dilla and Slum Village. It was also covered by the jazz musician Vijay Iyer. Um, and uh, so that's that's one of the one of the samples that I'm thinking about a lot and writing through because the original is amazing. It's 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 so so good and you know lyrically intimate and thoughtful. But then, of course, Dilla gets it. It's something crazy and amazing on its own. So that's one that I always I always think about in part two, because the samples have never or samples and covers have never not been right. Like every time I've heard it come up, it's been dope. Here's a small world moment is our grandma babysat for the Wilders, the, the singers. And really? Yeah, shout out, mom. Yeah, and, and we lived, and we lived <laughs> in, like across the street, and we lived in the same building as um, Lucille, uh, their their mother. Um, I'm oh pretty sure this is her name. So, yeah, she's still alive now. Beautiful. That's that's what I mean. You yeah. know about the intimacies, and yeah. and that's a story that should be told about this sample, right? Like the story right. of your grandmama and those kids. Right and everything else like that's it you know it tells us everything my mind is yeah blown. yeah no yeah mind blowing for real um I, yeah i feel like I, I feel like we could definitely keep talking but we don't want to we want to be respectful of your time you know i mean uh, well invite me back I'd be yeah there we, there we go there we go yeah right. now we'll we'll invite you back for more books and then we're also going to invite you back when this book of essays comes out because we mm -hmm. got to get into this too you know exactly yes thank yeah. you for Can't that you. yeah you right. said you said word is bond so you know <laughs> you know i, I was just like yes. oh all right respect then all right see you, see you when that happens <laughs> man literally on on the edge of the edge of my research that i was doing on you and your work I saw that that you did some commentary on Love Love Jones, and I'm like, man, I have to go buy this Criterion copy now because you did it with Mark Anthony Neal. Yeah, that was hilarious. I did it with Mark. I yeah. wasn't lying when I told you that's the homie. Yeah, that's the <laughs> yeah. last thing we've done together of recent. So it'll be out next month. Oh, it's not even out Let's yet. Let's go. Oh wow. No March. Okay, perfect, perfect. I, right. I can't wait to uh, see it. We just watched that movie uh over over the hall holidays were commenting on the number of leather of leather jackets like the amount like, <laughs> like every style like, I, I think i don't even know if they wear like the same one twice they're all always no. like, you have <laughs> like, nah. and bless you for not living through that period but <laughs> it was real that's how serious the leather jacket was wow brown leather yeah it was <laughs> every occasion yeah, shingles. Yeah. Hilarious. Oh, shingles. Well, actually, no, this was this was another this was a question that we asked uh uh Mark Anthony Neal as well. What are what are what are some of the most memorable concerts that you've been mm. to? Um and there is a part two to that, but I just wanted to to know. That's a great question. Um well the first concert I ever went to was a boys to men concert, which was memorable. <laughs> For that fact of them having made an impression on me at that age, I was probably 12 or 13, again, similar age. 
Um, and also me being so into them that I scraped together whatever pennies I could find from my paper route and stuff to get my ticket. One of the, I, I saw Kendrick when he was doing um, the more intimate venues between, um, I think the tour was called like King Kunta or something. It wasn't his mm. big stadium tour for Pimp to Pimp a Butterfly. It was like, a year after that and he was doing smaller venues i'm sure that, that was dope yeah i'm yeah. sure that was fire yeah that was dope although you know it's always painful to go to hip-hop shows because the audience doesn't look like us you know um yeah. i've seen black star a couple times i yeah. love them but that shit's painful you know because kids are in there with their glow sticks and like you know just doing all types of other oh, no. ridiculousness <laughs> um, Talk about but i saw color. I saw um, Yasin mm -hmm. in LA a few years ago. That was dope. I mean, one of the, just based on what has happened in popular culture recently, one of the better shows I've been to, like somebody whose performance surprised me was I saw Music Soul Child in Long Beach, maybe eight years ago, 10 years ago. And since he just did the verses with Anthony Hamilton, he's on my mind. And he slayed. He was so, so good. You That's know, good. I went as a fan of his music, but you know, a lot of people are good on the record and in, on stage, not so much. He was so good. He was really, really good. So that was one of the more memorable ones sparked for me by his recent verses. Yeah. Um, Great answers. Well, uh, yeah, no, seriously. And my part two of that was actually transitioning back into uh, your incredible work on Paul Robeson because um i mean I, I assume you haven't seen him live right but like you know his his uh his, his Bro, whole stage no, died just, before i was no, born just, no exactly no yeah you know hey black don't crack you know what i'm saying no but anyway but anyway anyway i am 85 years old yeah, what do you mean? <laughs> no i know it's just, just a full joke full joke out here but anyway like i think um uh it's very clear even just from um everything that you wrote everything mm -hmm. I know about him that his his presence live and in person mm -hmm. is like an incredible I mean like there's so much just around his life his politics his art but um being in person present with him like that uh is a real way of like being able to fully respect and fully have that awe for him as a person and given that you didn't have that experience like you know did you see that as a limitation? You very clearly still were able to like bring all of your love and admiration and respect for him into your writing. Um, but I was just wondering, you know, how you think about that just in terms of like even the power of, uh, you know, just his life and your ability to connect with it, even though you didn't overlap in your actual, mm. you know, lived experiences. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does make sense. That's a good question. I, I think, you know, it, it was a limitation for sure. Would I have preferred to have had that experience in order to write about it? Absolutely. You know, um, but I had to, you know, use as much of him as was currently physically in the world for me to be able to piece together some semblance of an experience of being in the room with him. And I think that that's why the hologram chapter was so important was the way in which his recorded voice or even his voice over the telephone as he's singing across the Atlantic to the Welsh miners 
um, in South Wales, you know, even that experience where the president of the union is writing to his wife after the telephone concert saying it's as if he was in the room with us. Right. That is that's the experience that I was trying to get close to because I couldn't physically ever be in space with him. But what what are the circumstances that I could create in my listening practice that would get me as close as possible to this person? So any of the recordings I could find of him live, which included that Welsh concert, there was a recording of it made. So being able to listen to him live versus him in the studio, which is still a mind blowing experience, but to have listened to him live is still different than that, right? And so just trying to dig and get as close to that experience as I possibly could, both in my own listening, but from the perspective of the people who were in the room to have some documents of them saying, it's like he was here, to have them saying, you know, he was singing only to me, right? It felt like he was singing only to me. Um, so those kinds of, of efforts to get close is the best I can do. And I hope I was able to translate that for readers because it's, it's really key to knowing who he was, was the type of intimacy that he tried to generate with every performance. He wanted people to feel like he was only singing to them and that that singing mattered because he was putting all of himself, all of his beliefs, all of his body into whatever it was that he was singing. And honestly, you have channeled that same energy into this podcast. We really thank you so, so much. I, I literally, the first quote that came to my mind, just hearing, hearing you talk was the monk quote, you know, the genius is the person most like the self and you, you really are uh, oh, yeah. super really. genius uh, <laughs> at, at that monk level and really just channeling all that knowledge and passion, emotion um, into this conversation was really a blessing. So thank, thank, thank you very much, very much. Thank you so much. It really was thank amazing to meet you and I look forward to part two. Oh, there we go. There we go. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Real Bars Read podcast. Be sure to leave a five-star review on Spotify or Apple Music, wherever you're listening to this podcast. And also be sure to check out Dr. Redmond's books, Anthem and Everything Man, at either bookshop.org or your local library. Thank you for listening to this podcast again, and we'll catch you next time.